So I want to begin with a phrase that most of us have probably heard. The church is full of hypocrites. It is. There are a lot of hypocrites in the church. I mean, without question, there are many hypocrites in the church. There are many people in the gathering wearing a mask. That's what the word hypocrite means. In the Greek, it's a term that was applied to actors. They were a hypocrite when they wore a mask and they played someone on a stage that they weren't really in real life. The church is filled with people who are playing something that they are not in real life. The church is full of hypocrites. For many of us, let's be honest, we're all hypocritical in some regard. All of us are carrying on some kind of outer facade that is an act for those around us because we want people to think that we are holy and more righteous than we really are. But those are not the people we're talking about this morning because all of us fall short of of where we should be. But there are true hypocrites in the church and Jesus used this term very often. And every time he used the term hypocrite, it was to refer to the religious people. It was to refer to the Pharisees. It was to refer to those who did all of the outward religious things but were dead inside. The reason we began our worship service with that text from Ezekiel is because it is to remind us that it is through God's work of the Spirit, we're going to see that this morning, of breathing new life into those that are dead. But until then, you're a hypocrite. And, you know, the Internet is a wonderful and terrifying place. And I don't usually like to quote from the internet unless it's funny. And so I'm going to, I was just looking at what does the world say about the church and hypocrites? And there's some ridiculous things, but there's some things that were, I think, appropriate for us this morning. One meme said that not going to church because of hypocrites is like not going to the gym because of out of shape people. Some of you will get that on the way home. Also, I like this one. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. Some of you also get that on your way home. Uh, But I think this one is appropriate to us. The church is not full of hypocrites. Because there's always room for one more. In our Christian lives, we're aware of that tension. That we are born again. But yet we're still sinners that makes the world profane the name of the Lord. And so before we get into the text, I want to talk about a distinction between religion and regeneration. So this is your seminary street word of the, of the week, regeneration. The prefix re means again, generation means to bring something into being. So we use these, these big words like regeneration in, in theological speak to just mean born again. It is to take, bring something into being again. But regeneration in terms of the church has greater significance because there's a spiritual element to bringing something into being again in a spiritual realm. And that is very different than religion. Because remember, it was the religious people that Jesus had a problem with. It is the religious people who are going through the the motions hoping to please God. And that's what religion is. It is doing something hoping that God will be pleased by your actions. Trying to please some angry deity or, or trying to please some God who you don't know, that is religion. But as we'll see this morning, regeneration is taking on a new life. Because you know, not hoping that God will be pleased with you, but you know God is pleased with you because the Father sent the Son and the Son gave you the Spirit. And so we know that He is pleased with us through the work that He's done in our lives. That is the difference between religion and regeneration. I do not want us to be religious people. 
We can be religious in our Christianity, but let's not just go through the motions. Let's not just do things for the sake of, of, of doing things. And those were the people who Jesus went to first because the Jews were very religious people. And we'll see he's going to meet one of those this morning. And there are many people in the church today who are religious without being regenerated. And that is a hypocrite. And this term we've heard thrown around, it's, it's not used as much as it used to, but this term born-again Christian, it's redundant. What other type of Christian is there? If you are born again, you are a Christian. But now we, in our culture, has created different boxes. Well, oh, you're not like those, those fundamentalist born-again Christians. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. But sadly, many people are Christians like Captain Crunch is a captain. And like Colonel Sanders is a colonel. In name only. But we do not seek to be people who are just born again in name or Christian in name. But has the Holy Spirit truly transformed you? And is there a difference in your life? And so we're going to see this text this morning. And we're going to begin the teaching of Jesus here in this text. And it's going to set the tone for everything else in the Gospel of John. Because if you've compared the Gospels, John is very spiritual in his approach. John is the spiritual gospel because John is writing with the intent that you believe and that you know how salvation is accomplished in whose name and by whose power. And we're going to see that this morning because John is most concerned with the ultimate question. How can I have eternal life? How can I have new life? How can I be reconciled to God? And John is concerned with the spiritual aspects of Jesus's teaching. We're going to see many, many of those going forward, and there's going to be a pattern that develops throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, and I hope that you're paying attention. So if you have your Bibles with me, open up to John chapter 2. If some of you are quicker than others, you'll notice that our text is supposed to be verses 1 through 15. And if you're really paying attention, last week I said I was going to begin in verse 22 of chapter 2. So here's where we are. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answers him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are great and mighty, majestic and lifted up. From before the foundation of the earth, you knew our comings and goings. You knew the hairs on our head. You knew that we would reject you from birth. You knew that apart from you intervening, we would have no hope. You sent your son that he would come. And to declare the good news to the nations. That there is life and life eternal. There is reconciliation with God. And it is through the new birth by faith in Jesus Christ. I just pray this morning that as believers we will be energized. And we will be encouraged by the reminder of where we stand with you because of this truth. That we will be encouraged about what you have done for us. And we will be emboldened to understand the implications of our faith, which we so often take for granted. Just pray that your spirit would guide our time together, your spirit would guide my speech, that it would be your words and not mine, and that your purpose would be accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so briefly we're going to begin, um, I said verse 22 of chapter 2, but verse 23. So this is tacked on to the end of chapter 2, and I tell you guys very, very often, ignore the chapter designations uh, in, in your Bible. They're there for helpful, they're to be helpful, they're there to, to memorize Scripture, but so many times we'll read chapter 2 and stop there, and we pick up in chapter 3 and we don't think that these are connected. But if you read the end of chapter 2, it helps us to understand chapter 3. Pay attention as if there's no chapter division here. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. See what John is doing here? There are many examples of people believing in Jesus. Jesus didn't give them everything. He gave them enough signs so those who had eyes to see and ears to hear would come to faith in him and know him. But some he still left in the darkness. He didn't entrust them to him because he knew them. He knew where their hearts were. He knew everyone. And he knew Nicodemus. This is just one example of many. And this man, Nicodemus, comes to him in the middle of the night. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. I just have to stop because I love this name. This name is like, he, if you're named Nicodemus, you are instantly old. I don't care how old you are, like you're, you're an old man. You're, I just, I, when I hear Nicodemus, I just picture like this wise old mouse in a children's book or something. This, this just wise old man, like you can't be a young Nicodemus. And that's just a, a side note. So Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was the religious elite. He was one of the, the wisest men. He was one of the teachers of Israel, Jesus calls him. And this man came to Jesus by night. This is the religious leader. This is the religious teacher. Don't you think he should be confident and bold in what he believes? He's sneaking around like, like a little kid. This is some covert stuff going on here. 
He's coming to Jesus in the middle of the night and he has to he has to know more about him. But he's so terrified of all of his peers that he can't do it during the day. He's a coward. He comes in the middle of the night. He doesn't come boldly. But I love what Jesus does because Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't say, I'm sleeping. Come back later. Jesus receives him. Jesus engages with him. This is just an amazing lesson to learn from our Savior. Because there is never a wrong time to come to our Savior. There is never a bad time. doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the night and you're scared. He will receive you and he will take time to engage with you and he will answer your questions. He probably won't give you the answers you were hoping for. We're going to see that in just a moment. But he took time with him. And what an amazing thing. Before we even get into the rest of the text, I mean, for us, if Jesus can be taken out of his comfort zone and can make time for people, shouldn't we do the same thing? Shouldn't we be available for those who come, who have questions for the hope that lies within us? I need to know about Jesus. Tell me. So I can't write this stuff. You cannot make this up. As I'm preparing for this yesterday, um, I'm thinking about this concept of Jesus allowing people to come to him. And I'm, and I'm thinking about how do I illustrate this pastorally? Cannot make this stuff up. I get a knock on the door. And there is a little old couple at my front door. Now, as a young Christian, when the Jehovah's Witnesses came, I would hide. Because I did not want to talk to them. I didn't understand them. And I didn't, want, I didn't have time for them. And so the irony here is I'm trying to finish my sermon. And I'm trying to make an application of how do I make myself available for people in this little couple that could barely stand up straight. I don't know how they still had them on the road. They didn't. They were driven. And so I was like, okay. I sensed who they were uh, because they've gotten, they've gotten very tech savvy. There's always witnesses. They don't carry books and, and uh, note cards anymore. They carry iPads. And so she, she had her iPad ready. And so this is kind of interesting because I'm, it's a comfortable Saturday. I'm sitting in my backyard with shorts and a cutoff shirt on. Not cut off this way. Sleeves, sleeves cut off. And, and I do not look like a pastor. It's like, okay, so this is going to be fun. She starts out with a really good question. She says, we're coming door to door just to talk to people about happiness. Can you tell me uh, what you think about happiness? I said, oh, man, where do I want to go with this? My mind's just spinning. I was like, oh, God. Uh, I just got so many arrows that, that, that I want to pull out for this one. So, you know, I'm going to start with, with the scripture. And so I quote from Ecclesiastes and from, from Proverbs. She said, oh, I'm glad you're talking about the Bible. So we begin to engage a little bit. And... Um, and she said, oh, it seems like you know your, your Bible pretty well. We just love to talk to people about the Bible. I said, well, so do I. Come on in. Let's talk. She said, well, we really have to be going. I said, well, before you go, can I, can I pray with you? She said, no, no, no. We can't. We can't do that. Because normally when people ask us to pray, they pray to a trinity. And, and we can't pray to that God. We can't have interfaith prayer. So I responded, so you're, you recognize that we're not of the same faith. We do not believe the same thing. And I said, you know, what's, you know what's amazing is that I'm a pastor. So, oh, okay. I'm preparing for my sermon tomorrow. And it's on John 3. So I explained this to her. Because Jesus is first teaching in the Gospel of John to let you know that you need to be born again of the Spirit. And I was speaking to this woman who said she loved her Bible like, like she did not know what I was saying. Like I was speaking another language. Born again, life in Christ, what, what is that? I was speaking to the woman because the husband literally could not lift his head up to make eye contact with me. He, he, was, he, was, he was on a walker, and she was holding on to the walker going door to door. I was like, don't you know you don't have to do this? 
Don't you know that you can have faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And as I'm speaking to her, she's walking away. I said, I thought you came to have a conversation. We left the car running. They literally did. As if she pushed like the red eject button, the car pulls up and some younger woman ushers them into the car. And and I said, listen, you have an open invitation. You can come anytime and we can talk about this. But I have a feeling there's going to be a big red X on my house and the map. I don't think I'm going to see Jehovah's Witnesses again. Maybe Maybe I came on too strong. And I was thinking about that. How many times as Christians, when we get a chance to share the gospel with people, do we leave the car running? How many times do we have somewhere to be and I've got my five minutes and if you don't, if, if you don't respond the way that I think you should, I'm out of here. How many times are we so busy to get back to what we have to do? Because her whole point was to save souls, was to convince them of, of Jehovah. She said I was in error. Said, Show me my error, please, in scripture. That's what happens when you don't have the truth. So it happens when, when you can't be confident in what you believe. And I want every one of you to be confident in what you believe. Because I don't care if you know five Bible verses. You have the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that anyone with any false gospel can say to you. But if you have a false gospel and it is exposed, you will run. Um, where are we? When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he comes in the middle of the night. Jesus makes time for him, obviously. And Nicodemus' words are amazing. And they are wise. Listen to what he says. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, first, this is an old Jewish man. This is, this is a member of the Sanhedrin. And he's telling some young upstart rabbi, he's saying, my teacher. Think about that for a moment. One of the members of the Jewish council is saying to Jesus, my teacher. It's extreme humility. And he also says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. He says, we know. That means he represents other people who are more scared than he is. He's the representative of all these, these, these people who are terrified of the rest of the Sanhedrin. I need to know more. We need to know more because you come from God. I mean, this is inflammatory language in that day. That's why he came at night. And it's just amazing what happens when, when the Lord works in you because this religious man got rid of all decorum. He didn't come to Jesus, rabbi to rabbi, to debate things. He came in the middle of the night. He said, teacher, teach me. Tell me what I need to know. Nicodemus thought that Jesus was a teacher and he was a miracle worker. And he was even sent from God. But that wasn't enough. Because Jesus responds in not a way that Nicodemus was expecting. I think this is important for our culture too because Nicodemus was a rich man and he was a religious man. That was not enough. How many times in our culture do we hear messages that will either tell you to be more religious or that God wants you to be more rich? Or that if you just solve someone's money problems, if you just solve someone's moral problems, then they're going to change. This guy had all the money and all the morals together, but it was still not enough. Jesus responds like he doesn't even hear his statement. This man just told him that you came from God. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You will see this truly, truly, I say to you again and again in the gospel of John. This is like saying, pay attention. I know you're not listening. Pay attention. I say to you, thus says the Lord. Amen, amen. So it be, let it be, let it be. I say to you, 
I am speaking as one of authority to you, a member of the Sanhedrin. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, some of you remember the, some of the older translations that say, unless you were born from above. This word anothen in, in the Greek uh, is actually very versatile. It can mean either one. It can mean born again or it can mean uh, born from above. The same word is used in verse 31. Speaking of Christ, he who comes from above is above all. So this is theologically significant. This is not just a new birth, a different kind of birth. This is a birth from above. It is both. It is a rebirth and a birth from above. Uh, But context dictates how you apply this verse. And we know the, the, the connotation that Nicodemus is drawing because of his response. Look at his response here. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into a second time into into his his mother's womb and be born? This is a legitimate question. Because if you're thinking temporally, if you're thinking, all right, if he's speaking of another birth, I know how biology works. I mean, it doesn't really work that way. I can't go back in once I've come out. And so he's he's trying to make sense of this in in his mind. But he doesn't get the real spiritual problem. Again, remember, you're going to hear this so many times. John's gospel is the spiritual gospel. Everyone is looking up here in, in, in the things that they can see in the temporal realm. But Jesus is looking at these grand, redemptive, spiritual concepts. Because the problem is Nicodemus doesn't understand his own sin. He doesn't understand in his first birth, he is dead in sin. He is completely wicked without life of his own. And that will end in death. If we are left in our first birth, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us it's impossible. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't need to rephrase that. Jesus said it very plainly. The solution is you must be born again. The cry of every evangelist throughout history, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. Comes from the words of our Savior. Otherwise, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't have time to unpack every one of these these terms. The kingdom of God means a lot of things, but I think Paul's definition in Romans 14, 17 is probably the most appropriate. And you don't have to turn there. It's going to be up on your screen. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. It's not a temporal kingdom. It's not made up of things we can see and touch. It's not a kingdom of our senses. It's a kingdom of the spirit. It's a a kingdom of the things of God. Unless you've been born again, you have no citizenship in the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God. You do not belong to that kingdom. But if you do belong to that kingdom, your citizenship is a spiritual one. It's an eternal one. And it is one, not one of, of eating and drinking. So when people make the kingdom of God about making someone's earthly situation better, they distort the gospel. Jesus didn't care that this man was rich. He didn't care this man was was moral. He wanted him, him to have citizenship in an eternal kingdom, and you can only do that by being born into that kingdom by the power of the Spirit. We're going to get there in just a moment. Verse 5, Jesus answers, again, speaking of authority, in authority. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. All right. I don't know if you've read through this before and think about how awkward of a conversation this is. Because first Nicodemus comes and declares that you're from God. Jesus says, you must be born again. 
Nicodemus has a, has, has a valid question. Can I go back into my mother? You must be born again. Are you listening to me? I, I'm asking questions here. Why aren't you listening to me? But Jesus knew what was in him. That's why the end of chapter two is so important, because he knew what was inside of him. He knew what he needed to hear, because no rational explanation is going to make sense here. You need to have your eyes opened. This is a regular theme. Jesus did not come to address earthly problems with earthly solutions. And if your gospel is earthly solutions to earthly problems, read John. Because Jesus came to address the ultimate issue. How can I be reconciled to God? Jesus didn't come to give us a better life, but a new life and one that is eternal. Nicodemus is still missing the spiritual implications here. Jesus, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is repeating himself again. Earlier, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In case you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to reiterate it a second way of water and the spirit. I can't get into all the different theories of what it means to be born of water and the spirit. There are a lot of debates here. But what I can tell you for certain is what Jesus told us about water. And fast forward to the woman at the well again. You remember when he meets with this woman and she's drawing water up out of the well. He tells her that I have water, that if you drink of it, you will never thirst again. I don't know exactly what he's referring to here, and scholars will debate this forever, but I do know what he said for certain. That if you come to him, he will give you the water that you will drink of and will lead to life everlasting. And in the new heavens and new earth coming out of Jerusalem, there is a river of life that is flowing out of the temple. And Jesus is our temple. So whatever that means particularly, it means come to Christ. There is no life without Christ. Without being born of the water that is living coming from him and the spirit that he sent to to transform us. We're going to spend some time on these next couple of verses here in 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's talking about two births here. Two kinds of people. The flesh and the Spirit. And they don't have any business with each other. They're two different, two different births. Two different people. We talked about this in Romans 5. The first birth in Adam. Everyone is born into the flesh in Adam. Only some are born into the spirit in Christ. And if you are in the first birth in Adam, it is of flesh and it is of death. If you are born in the second birth by the Holy Spirit into faith in the crucified Christ, it is life. And these two have nothing to do with each other. And they produce of themselves. The flesh only produces flesh. The spirit only produces spirit. Never in history has a monkey given birth to an elephant. Never in history has a duck hatched a squirrel. I don't care what your textbooks say. If you are of the flesh, you continue to produce of the flesh. And if you are of the spirit, you continue to produce of the spirit. And until you are born into the spirit, there is no producing of any eternal value. You have to get that clear. There is no in between. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. There is no middle ground here. Verse 7. As if that's not enough, Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Because Nicodemus in the back of his mind is still like, I can't go back in there. So think about this. Uh, What was required for you to be born the first time? Not there. Fast forward a little bit. And some of you will get that on the way home. Um, God took existing material from your mother and father 
living cells and brought them together to give life into something new in and of itself. Took existing material and made something new out of it. And when you were born the first time, it is a miracle. The fact that God can use us to make something new that has life apart from us is amazing. And it's a miracle. And new birth is also a miracle. And it happens the same way. Because God takes existing material and he transforms it. He takes something that was existing and he breathes new life in it and gives it life for a new purpose. Um, anyone grew up in the church in like the 70s and 80s? Just a couple of us. So uh, there was this, this, this record that we listened to as a kid. And some of you people, I'll explain what a record is later. Um, but it's, the song was called Bullfrogs and Butterflies. Anyone remember that? I didn't get that until recently. I mean, this is, this is an interesting concept because the, the, the chorus of the song is bullfrogs and butterflies. They've both been born again. And there's this theological undertone because a tadpole is essentially the same substance as a bullfrog. But a tadpole can't jump. It can only swim. It can't breathe air. Butterflies start out as caterpillars of the same substance, but caterpillars cannot fly. Two very different things. And that's similar to how the Lord works in, in our second birth. He takes something that is there that is unassuming because many of us, if you don't realize it, before Christ, you were a caterpillar. You were this ugly thing that just crawled along, didn't really do much of anything. And through this spiritual metamorphosis, God transformed you and made you in his sight into a beautiful, graceful butterfly. Even though you may not feel graceful, in his eyes you are. Because he's taking you from something that is unassuming and ugly to something that is spiritually beautiful. That is the picture of the new birth, the second birth in the spirit. And you should be encouraged to look at how far you've come from your caterpillar days. The other aspect of that is not just the the, the transformation, but the characteristics. In our first birth, we bear the characteristics of our parents. We're always a combination of the two sets of genes that come together to make us. And we look and, and bear the characteristics of the one who birthed us. The second birth is exactly the same. Because we bear the characteristics of the one who birthed us spiritually. Because through the second birth, the spirit makes us like our brother, the son, who shows us how to glorify the Father, and now the new family is complete. This this new birth brings forth life into a new family and a new likeness that can only happen once you've been born of the Spirit. And this is why family language is so important in the church. This is why we, we talk so much about being brothers and sisters in Christ, because not only are you given a new life and a new brother in Christ and a new father in our heavenly father, but we are now connected to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Wednesday night going uh, through Romans, one of my favorite uh, implications of the gospel, we talked about adoption. This that I wish the church talked about more. Because adoption is amazing. This addresses in Galatians 3 and, uh, and, and elsewhere and Romans 8. But adoption tells us that not only did Christ come to die for our sins, that we'd be reconciled to God. And he did. 
And not only did Christ not just reconcile us to God, but give us his righteousness so we would have a positive standing before God. And he did. Not only that, did he promise to give us life eternal, and he did. But in that life eternal, he sits us down at a seat of honor, and he did. And give us an inheritance that will never pass away. And he did. And that adoption takes things from the legal. Justification is legal and it's a beautiful thing. But it's different when it's familial. When you sit down and now you have a seat at the father's table. And no one is taking you out of his family. And that is a beautiful thing. A beautiful implication of this new life. Being born again in the likeness of a new family. And then Jesus kind of out of left field here. He says in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Um, it seems like he's going out of left field here, but this is really important to understand. Uh, there's a lot of wordplay going on here in the Greek, and I wish I could share it all with you, but the word for, for wind and the word for spirit is the same, pneuma. Uh, so there's, again, there's, there's versatility, there's there's Uh, there's kind of a double meaning here. The wind comes and goes where it wants, and the spirit comes and goes where it wants. Um, He's telling us that the spiritual birth is not of man. He's telling you, as soon as he says, be born again, I want you to understand that this is not something of man. This is not something you can do. This is not something you can conjure up. This is not something you can predict. This is an act of God. Just like we do not control the wind, we do not control where the spirit works. We're kind of like spiritual meteorologists. We can take a shot. We can tell you for certain where the wind has been and where the wind has not been, but we can't really tell you where it's going next. Some people tell you we're going to have a revival Friday night at 8 o'clock. I hope they told the Holy Spirit because it doesn't really work that way. The way that the Holy Spirit works is according to the plan of God, and this is really important. This is really important to get because one it's not up to us to save ourselves or to save anyone else. It's not up to us to put the pressure on, on, on ourselves to try to bend the Holy Spirit to our will. We can trust in the plan of God. We can trust that those who are broken and dead in their sin are not out of God's sight. And that he knew them before the foundation of, of the earth. And that his plan to never lose one of his sheep. If you are written in the Lamb's book of life, the Spirit will find you. The Spirit will work in you and at a time that you do not know. And so those of us who labor in evangelism, those of us who labor with those who don't know the Lord, those of us who pray fervently for those who are far from the Lord, come before the Lord and surrender your will to the work of His Spirit and pray for the Spirit's work in the lives of others. It's just like those two sweet little people at the door. I could open Scripture all day long. Could point them to Jesus all day long, but unless the spiritual winds are blowing into their hearts that are trying to earn a salvation made by man, they're going to be dead. Jesus is telling them, don't try to take this into your own hands. Recognize that this is a work of God for the glory of God. So Nicodemus, as he should, still dumbfounded, Verse 9, Nicodemus says to them, how can these things be? So there's a transition here. There's a transition from the nature of the second birth to the basis of it. So Okay, so now we understand what the second birth is, but what is the basis of it? And so Jesus is going to help us understand this. 
This passage here, these first 15 verses in chapter 3, help explain the entire gospel. You want to know the gospel message? What did Jesus find most important to teach to the ruler of the synagogue, of the Sanhedrin? What did John find most important to include as the first teaching of Jesus? Because John told us there are so many teachings of Jesus, they could fill up all the books in all the world. But this is the first teaching he includes. Why is this here? Why is this important? I'm going to run through this quickly, but I hope you'll, you'll understand. So Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus answered him with a detailed explanation of how these things can be, right? Of course not. This is not PC Jesus. Jesus does does not like idle talk. Jesus is direct, and that's why I love him. I love that he does not beat around the bush, and he does not, he's not concerned about Nicodemus' feelings and hope he feels okay with his response, because he comes out with this great commendation of Nicodemus' theological prowess, right? No. He says, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? This is a religious man. This is a leader. And Jesus says, what you know is not enough. You're teaching my people. And there's this glaring blind spot. I'm trying to teach you heavenly things, he says here. Truly, truly, I say to you the third time. Hey, knucklehead. Again, I'm saying to you, these are spiritual things. These these are beyond your religious acts. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe heavenly things? What you also don't get here in the Greek is that each one of these yous is plural. He's not saying you Nicodemus don't get this. He's saying you Jews don't get this. You Sanhedrin don't get this. We He is giving the testimony of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is telling them spiritual things. And they, you, plural, do not understand. If I can't tell you the the, the basics of salvation, how can I tell you any weightier matters? I mean, this is amazing. Jesus is unpacking this before him. And he's just going right over his head. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is another foreshadowing of of the things to come. No one has ascended into heaven, except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. It is only the Son of Man who has come from heaven, the incarnate Christ, who took on flesh, who came down to earth, who will one day ascend back to heaven. This would not have made sense to Nicodemus, but it would one day. Only through the one who come down from heaven who would go back to heaven. What does that have to do with anything? And then verse 14 seems like he's even going further into left field. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, much the son, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What does this have to do with Moses and the serpent? Where did all of this come from? Uh, I cannot read the passage, but you can read it on your own. Numbers 21. Let me just kind of set the scene for you. Uh, this is Israel. Faithful Israel who always did what God told them. No. Uh, they, they, they doubted God. They rebelled against God. They were seeking after other gods. And so God sent serpents to bite them. Venomous serpents. And many of them died. And so when they, when they see their brothers and sisters falling, they okay, we, we better not get on God's bad side anymore. They repent of their sins and they, and they turn to God. Save us. So God gives Moses this weird command. Make a head of a serpent out of bronze and put it on a wooden pole and have them look at it. If they look at it, they will be healed. And they were. 
It seems really strange until you understand the symbolism here. Um, pay attention, because this is going to make a lot of things connect. Um, first and foremost, because of their sin, they deserve to die. Many of them did. Some did not. But God provided a way if they trust him and look upon this snake with faith. The snake was put up on a wooden pole. Um, let's think about in Scripture, when is the first time we see the image or the idea of a snake come up? You can say it out loud. Okay, in the garden, and it kind of hurt some of that. So the serpent is what led Adam and Eve astray. And what happens after they, they, they bit the apple? The first proclamation of the gospel, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of, of the serpent, and the serpent was identified with a curse. That serpent was symbolic of a curse throughout all of history. So here in the wilderness, a serpent is lifted up on a pole. What does Paul tell us what Christ did for us? He became a what for us? He became a curse for us. He went, he was lifted up on a pole for the sake of our sins. So this foreshadowing was the one who would come to die on a pole as a curse for us. They would have to look at the cursed one. They have to be reminded of the curse of the fall, reminded of their own sin, reminded of the, the, the death that came by the serpent. And it is only by trusting in the Lord and repenting of their sins that they would be saved. Jesus was to be lifted up as a curse. So this is what he tells Nicodemus. It is only the one who comes down from heaven, who will go back up, who will be lifted up on a pole as a curse. And if you believe in him, verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes, it is good. Thank you, Jay. And so in verse 15, he is answering Nicodemus's question. How can these things be? You are born again by believing in the crucified Christ, the one who came down from heaven and the one who will ascend again, who became a curse for you. That is how you were born again. That is how new life in Christ happens. And to be born again is to have eternal life. And in order to be born again, you must believe in the one who came from heaven, the one who died, who became a curse for your sins, who rose again and one day ascended into heaven to be uh, or who was then ascended into heaven, who was seated there on the throne of power and glory forever. This is how the new birth is accomplished. Faith in that one. So this did not make sense to Nicodemus in this moment, but it would one day. Because this text doesn't really tell us how Nicodemus responds. But John does. John is a master storyteller. John is a master theology and a master storyteller because Nicodemus comes up two more times in the Gospels, in this Gospel. And you kind of see where his heart is. Because the second time Nicodemus comes up, the, the, the same Sanhedrin is arguing about Jesus. Some of them are trying to defend him and, and, and just give him the benefit of the doubt. And Nicodemus speaks up. He says, don't judge a man before you have heard him out. So Nicodemus has already become more emboldened in his faith in Christ. But this comes uh, in just a minor detail. When Jesus is put in his tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man who bought the tomb, goes to put spices on his body. One man accompanies him, Nicodemus. 
So this conversation, seeds planted a couple years before, changed a man who was, who was rich and who was religious. But I pray whose heart was regenerated, who came to trust and faith in the Christ that would be lifted up as a curse for his sins. And we, as believers, pray that everyone would come to that recognition. And so just a couple simple questions. I mean, these are basic questions. These are questions you should ask. You should ask anyone who you speak to. Are you born again? And not in the, how do I be nice about this? Um, and not in the, the public sphere kind of way uh, that walk around beating your, your chest that I am, I am religious, I am, I am Christian. Are you truly born again? Has your heart been transformed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh? Has the spirit breathed life in you? Do you believe in the risen Christ? Have you found comfort in his name? Have you recognized your sin and your need for him? Well, looking around, there, most of you are believers. I think maybe all of you are. But these are the simple conversations we can have with, with people. Because if the spirit blows as it will, it is not up to you to make the, the, the perfect case or present the perfect gospel explanation. It is for you to know the risen Christ and to want others to know the risen Christ. It is for you to be born again and be filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit will work through you. And that is to be an encouragement, brothers and sisters. That is our encouragement, that in Christ we are born into a family, an eternal citizenship, a life everlasting in the name of Christ. And that is secure, and no one can ever snatch us out of his hand, because he promised it, he accomplished it, he secures it with his Holy Spirit. And this is the basis of the gospel, and everything else depends on it. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you for this eternal truth. That your plan of salvation is perfect, and all of your ways, you are perfect. In all of your plans, you are perfect. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you that you have given us all we need to find our hope and our identity and our life in you through new birth. And you have given us all we need by the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of your word, to be people who tell based on the truth of your scripture exalting the name of Jesus Christ, that the name under, under heaven in which no one can be saved apart from. That we would love you with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And as we are filled with your spirit, we would love our neighbor as ourselves and lead by the spirit and be people who are transformed according to your name for the purpose of, of your kingdom because that is where our citizenship lies. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.